Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on SpeechTherapyPD.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Thank you so much for joining us on Keys for SLPs for this episode, Keys to Telepractice with Clients with Aphasia. I am your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No non-financial disclosures to disclose. Genevieve Richardson is the owner of Life Speech Pathology and Life Aphasia Academy. She also receives compensation for this presentation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Genevieve's non-financial disclosures are that she is an ASHA member and participant in SIG2 Neurogenic Communication Disorders. And now, here's a little bit about our guest today, Genevieve Richardson, MSCCC, SLP. Genevieve has worked in telepractice exclusively for the last eight of her 28-year career, working with adults in every rehabilitation setting. She is the owner of Life Speech Pathology and Life Aphasia Academy. She evaluates and treats adults with chronic aphasia across multiple states through her private practice. Through Life Aphasia Academy, she is dedicated to the spouses and families of stroke survivors by educating, empowering, supporting, and training those who want to be an effective aphasia practice coach. Genevieve has discussed teletherapy as a guest on Keys for SLPs in a past episode and through a webinar on speechtherapypd.com. Today, she discusses telepractice with clients with aphasia. Welcome, Genevieve. Thank you very much. Starting with the assessment, how do you assess an adult via telepractice? Is this where I say very carefully? (laughs) I think this Uh, is where you say very carefully. (laughs) So, you know, evaluation has really come a long way from when I started doing this eight years ago to where we are today. So prior to the pandemic, that seems to be our line of demarcation for where things change for a lot of us that are clinicians. I did a lot of dynamic or formative assessment, you know, just kind of getting in with a client and experimenting, seeing where they're breaking down, understanding where their goals are. Now, post-pandemic, many of our standardized test publishers are allowing the administration via telepractice. So one interesting fact I've realized 
is of all the actual tests that I own that I bought years and years ago, because I did home health, all of them are published by ProEd. And ProEd has made their stimuli and their record forms available for virtual use. So go to the ProEd website if you're interested in some tests such as the Ross Information Processing Test or the Boston, the Full Boston or the Boston Short or the Boston Naming Test. ProEd offers virtual stimuli. So you pay for it and then they use a third party app called Red Shelf, I believe it is. And your agreement as a speech pathologist with ProEd is that you're not going to make copies of their stimuli and you're not going to record their stimuli. So it is acceptable to show the stimuli via telepractice where the client interacts with it. Usually they see it, respond verbally, and you fill out your evaluation form, much like you would if you're in person. Okay. So that's an excellent resource. I have a question though. Yeah. So those tests were initially standardized in in in-person assessments. So are they still standardized? So in a report, do you have to write done via teletherapy? Do you have to specify? Yes. And ProEd has a document on their website that helps give guidance on that. But I absolutely do put that in my reports. And, you know, with that, I always, because I'm a functional therapist, I always take standardized tests with a grain of salt. Yes, I'll get the scores and I'll compare them to age match peers and, you know, all that stuff. But I take the value of the responses I get on an evaluation, whether it's standardized or other methods. Does that make sense? I just... Uh, the scores are great, but that's not, that's not number one for me. I'm about understanding where the client is and where they're breaking down. And so I'm using the test as a stimuli, so to speak, to not only get scores, but to also really understand where they're breaking down. Where they are now and um, help you in writing those functional goals. Yes. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. So that's interesting. I would say I would call that a silver lining of the pandemic for you that now you have a lot more resources. I've got, I think I have five tests that I already own that I just purchased the virtual stimuli for. Like the Ross, the Ross information, there is no visual stimuli for it. So I can just give that test verbally, which is awesome. Much, And I'm getting the same result as if I were in person with that test in particular. Well, that's great. Okay. So you've added some standardized assessments, giving them in a non-standardized way. And then you have some functional assessments as well. I do a lot of functional assessments. I've really started incorporating more, do we call them surveys, questionnaires, just getting more dynamic information. I'm incorporating some of these questionnaires that I'm getting from the spouses or the significant other in the home to really understand where the person is functioning. So I would say that is a big change for me over the last couple of years since the pandemic. And are those questionnaires that you have developed yourself? No, there's a bunch of them online and a few of them I can talk about, aphasia needs assessment. These, you can Google all of these there and they are free to use as long as you, you know, acknowledge your authors. 
you know, the people that put them together. Community integration questionnaire is another one. Patient competency rating. Those are just three of these questionnaires that I use. I also use some non-standardized tests. Sometimes I don't want to give the Boston for whatever reason. Maybe I just need to mix it up sometimes. I like the quick aphasia battery, which is out of, I want to say, Vanderbilt University. You can Google it and it comes in. I think there's three different administrations. So you can, you know, retest and you're not going to get this, you know, not going to get that learned response. Potentially. It's never come up as an issue for me, but it does have three different versions of it. And it's translated into different languages too. So it's a nice resource if you have a multilingual person with aphasia. Well, that's great. And you have some clients who you have worked with over a long period of time. So being able to retest is really key to demonstrating progress. Yeah, absolutely right. So some other non-standardized, I use the Philadelphia naming test. Just because it just gives me a slightly different information than the Boston naming test. And sometimes I, as a clinician, need variety. (laughs) The Arizona semantic test is another one that I use. So between standardized, non-standardized, just doing some general dynamic formative assessment based on tasks that I think are important for someone using questionnaires, I feel like I get a really good sense of who that person is and what we need to work on. It helps me find that direction I want to go. And then I continue to develop my plan as I do goal planning with my clients. Excellent. Okay. So what are some, since you're working via technology, what are some special considerations for technology, either for yourself or for the client or the family? An excellent and loaded question. So (laughs) I will say doing this for so many years, not every client is made for telepractice. I work with adults. I have never failed to get an adult engaged in telepractice, logging on on their own in telepractice, But I know that there's clinicians that work with younger kids or special populations. Telepractice may not be the way. We don't have to do it anymore. The pandemic, you know, as it is right now, many people have gone back to inpatient or in person. But for adults, I love that I can do telepractice because I can reach them wherever they are. I can provide Mm -hmm. my specialty services and they don't have to travel to me and I don't have to travel to them. Hence why I'm mm-hmm. in so many states. Well, it especially enhances their independence when a lot of your clients are no longer driving or not driving at the moment. And so they have to rely on someone else to take them to and from therapy. So for them to be able to independently log on and engage without someone else present, it does really help their independence. And sometimes in some cases, you do want to have a family member present, of course, but definitely. It's all about setting expectations. That would be my big takeaway as far as technology goes. When I have someone that is interested in having therapy, we do a consultation call before usually I have a phone call first. I get their email address and I have a telepractice guide that I send to them. It walks them through with screenshots and links, everything they need 
whether they're on a Mac or a Windows computer or if they're on their iPad. I don't use phones. Phones are phones are are a no-go for me for telepractice. The screen is just too small for what I need to accomplish and how I like to work with my clients. So they get this telepractice guide. They work through it. If they have questions, you know, they reach out to me. So we start problem solving before they even come on. Yes, it does take some extra time. Yes, I wish I had another person in my office that could help walk them through it. But also that gives me information about them. It helps me see their mental flexibility. It helps me see how they're interacting with, if it's the spouse that's with them, if it's a caregiver, whoever is with them, I'm getting information. So even though I'm not billing for that time, it's still information that is going through my head and helping me formulate my evaluation and my treatment plan for them. But you have to set these folks up for success. They don't know what bandwidth is. They don't know how to check their internet speed. What's Zoom? I mean, all of us, many of us know Zoom. Zoom used to be a noun. Now it's a verb, right? right. I'm going to Zoom <laughs> with Mary Beth today, you know? That's what I tell my kids. I'm getting on Zoom. You know, it's the world has changed, but I've never, like I said, I'm repeating myself, but I've never failed to get someone on telepractice. And sometimes it's a new goal. Technology is not for everybody. Have a helper, especially for the evaluation. If you're going to have a spouse sitting there and you're going to test your person, especially if it's standardized, you need to let him or her know not to get involved unless you ask them to get involved. Because then you start skewing your evaluation results if it's standardized. Set your expectations. Have an open communication Allow them to raise their hand and go, hey, wait, what? So from that consultation, you know how successful or how challenged this person is going to be. And sometimes it's my initial goal is to get somebody to log in independently, get into their email program, find the Zoom link, click the Zoom link, turn on their camera, unmute. This is all a goal. I may not write it down as a goal, but it's still an initial goal for this mm-hmm. person. And I tell you, their confidence goes way up. Typically, what is the time post-stroke for your clients? Are they a month out, months out, years out? I'd say years out. Most of my clients have come to the practice two or more years post-stroke. Wow. Isn't that crazy? These folks are still getting better. That's why I refer to it as chronic aphasia. Rehab just doesn't go long enough. Because these skills, language is complicated. Who says we can accomplish, you know, get somebody back talking in 12 visits? It is not possible. Well, I'd like to see who has it and I'd like to borrow their magic wand. But aphasia therapy takes time. Mm -hmm. And we have to be systematic and we have to work it every day. And we have to get the family involved or the caregiver involved. It is not me therapizing a client. When I was a young clinician, I was like, hey, I got the knowledge. Mr. Jones, you need to do this, this, that. That is not how I do therapy anymore. It is a team approach. I am a cheerleader. I do as small amount of cueing as possible. You know, we all learned our cueing hierarchy. 
I really, really try not to use it. I let the person work it through. But I digress. I could talk about this, <laughs> all, the, all these topics all day. So I'll try and keep it to evaluation. So technology, train, set the expectations, make sure they're sitting at a table with their face lit up. Don't let them have an open window behind them where you can't see their face in their mouth. We only get to work with a small amount of their body language, you know, from just below the collarbones up. That's it. That's all we get to see. We need to be able to see it. It's really important. Absolutely. Now, you said so some of them are years post-stroke. So typically, how many months or sessions of therapy have they had prior to seeing you? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Most folks had not been doing therapy for probably more than a year maybe two years. So they went through their inpatient, their home health, their outpatient, maybe they got outpatient treatment for three, four months, and then they were discharged. So many of my clients were told, you've reached a plateau. There's nothing more I can offer you. Go live your life. Be free. Mm -hmm. And just the ones that have found me in this practice, they're not willing to settle. They want more. And how do they find you typically just through an internet search? Because I know you have clients all over the country. How many states are you in now? In 12. 12. Oh, wow. <laughs> and a lot of my licenses are coming up for renewal. <laughs> so I bet you are really looking forward to that interstate compact. Oh, that would be so nice. But Texas needs to get on board on that. Hey, Texas, TDLR, you need to get on board with your <laughs> So I actually have it on my to-do list to write to them and find out where Texas is and why they aren't being a part of this. There's quite a few states in that interstate compact. From what I'm understanding, because I was watching some of the recent videos just last week, just kind of seeing where they are, because originally they thought they'd have the compact ready this summer. Well, Last I checked, it's July and it's summer and it's right. not here. And now I'm hearing, you know, early next year. So what I understand is for the interstate compact to work, you're the state that you're sitting in, your state has to be in the compact for you to treat the other folks in that compact. Oh, I may have that wrong. I okay. didn't get to watch the whole video. It was kind of long and, you know. I move okay. on. <laughs> I move on to things. But yeah, so Texas you know, definitely needs to join for you to be able to use it. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, that'd be really nice. Out of curiosity, how long you've, you've done your consultation and then you do mm -hmm. your assessment. How long does your assessment via teletherapy usually take? How many sessions and how many minutes? I have no idea because everybody's different. So I actually had the opportunity to do an in-person assessment, somebody here in the Austin area, and I spent two and a half hours at his house. It wasn't all direct standardized testing. It was a lot of talking and really understanding where he was because he's 50 years old. He is in a high tech job. And he has very specific goals, specifically for working and his role at his company. So we were just really digging into it. But I tell you, it was so nice for me to be back in somebody's home because I've done home health therapy the biggest part of my career. 
So I always loved doing the functional therapy and being in the house and seeing how they interact with the dog. And, you know, if the doorbell (laughs) rings, if the phone rings, you know, all of these things, it's great information. So in general, I would probably say at least one hour of testing, but then there are surveys that go out. You know, I send electronically to the family. They can fill it out through my practice management software. So it's all HIPAA compliant and all that good stuff. And then I may follow up the second session and gather a little bit more information. But usually by the second session, we are well into talking about goals. But then again, for me, I'm not compartmentalized. I'm talking about goals from the time I see them on consultation. So it's not linear. Well, that is a good segue to our next topic, goals. Isn't that amazing? Gosh, we are so good. We didn't follow a linear path to get there, but we got there, Genevieve. We'll we'll get there eventually. Yes. Sorry. I know we're only supposed to talk for an hour. I can talk on this for No, no, no. It's all All good. good. All good. Um, Okay. So via telepractice. Mm-hmm. How do you go about goal setting? And do you find that it's a little harder to set goals via teletherapy versus in person? Is it? I'll start with your second question. Is it harder? I don't necessarily think so because I'm all about building rapport from that very first contact with someone. That's just, you have to build a rapport so they trust you and you open up the dialogue. You open the conversation. You ask a lot of questions. I would say setting goals for me because I've done functional therapy all of my career. I mean, I started out in um, acute rehabilitation, freestanding hospital, and I was on the stroke unit and everything was functional. Everything was functional there. I did a lot of co-treatments with physical therapy and occupational therapy and therapeutic recreation and worked with a neuropsychologist. And so I've always been team focused. I've always been patient focused. So that's not hard for me. It's, it's in my DNA as a clinician. So when it comes to developing my goals, I've done a little bit of a shift lately. I've been using and I'm going to skip ahead here and talk about goal attainment scaling. This is something that's relatively new for me, but it fits so well with what I was doing. It just makes it a little more specific. And what I mean by that is the definition is it's used, it's a method used to clearly define goals that are important to the individual, allowing real life factors to be defined in a way that progress can be measured. And what I love to do is because I see people on Zoom, I use a whiteboard. I do a lot of drawing on the whiteboard. So if you can visualize almost like a thermometer, you know, there's the bulb at the top and then there's a line going down and the bulb at the top is the goal. If somebody has a goal of being able to order their dinner when they go out for their anniversary dinner with their husband, you know, a couple of months from now, that's their goal. So then what we do is we use this kind of thermometer in a concept to define where they are now and then what are the steps of progress to get to that ultimate goal. My clients love this. It is their goal 
We're breaking it into pieces. They see the path we're taking and why we're doing it. And it's measurable. It's measurable. They can move from maybe they can, maybe a level five on this is ordering with a script in a quiet environment, in a structured quiet environment. Maybe a seven is using that same script, but they're able to order in a noisy environment. This is all stuff we've all done for treatment. This just makes it really visually apparent. Even if my folks can't read great, they respond great to this method. So I'm incorporating this in everything that I do. We can look at skills. We can look at the strategies. We look at context that they're using to work their way up to that ultimate goal. We can look at number of communication partners. We can talk about how noisy or distracting is the environment. All of these things can be measured and documented and they can see their progress and they can understand. The most powerful part of how I do treatment is that the client understands where they're going, where they started, where they want to go and how we're going to get there. You don't need to see some of our goals, you know, 80%, you know, with minimum queuing, blah, blah. They don't care about that. They want real life, tangible, that's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love this. And able to see that they're climbing up that thermometer. They are. And I think of it as it looks like an old style thermometer with that big old bulb at the top. You can draw it any way you want. You can make it, you know, horizontal. It doesn't matter. The point is you're making progress. You've defined what those parameters are and how you're moving. So that's how I like to set goals. And just to clarify, you use the whiteboard on Zoom and then you save it for each client or for each activity? So we're getting, well, I mean, but this is part of me and this is part of how I do telepractice. So when we were looking to change to an official like billing system, electronic medical record, What was so important to me, because I started telepractice eight years ago using WebEx. WebEx has a lovely whiteboard. You can draw on it. You can change the colors. You change the font. You can do whatever you want on it. The only thing you can't do is like drop pictures onto the whiteboard. Okay. So that's how I started. So that's part of how I developed as a telepractitioner because I had that whiteboard and because I'm working with adults that can read or at least you know, they can recognize the letters. They know that those letters have meaning. They know when they're put together in a certain way, they make words. It's very different than if you're working with a kid where you're trying to teach them those things. So with the whiteboard, Zoom was my platform. WebEx, I we drifted away from it because it just seemed to take more bandwidth. And Zoom, we can get away with less bandwidth. So if somebody's in a rural location, then they're still more likely to be able to get on with a Zoom than with a WebEx. Okay. Anyway, but the whiteboard is my tool. Everything goes on the whiteboard. I put the date on it. I put their initials on it. When we finish with a whiteboard, it gets saved as a PDF. And I have a HIPAA compliant storage system that I share with each client. Only I can get into it or the clinician that's treating and that client. So it is very restricted. Nobody else is getting it. What the whiteboard does is allows me to 
share with them the words, the sentences, the concepts we're working on. So my expectation, and it's not just an expectation, all of my clients have been trained. They know how to get into that folder. They know how to pull up their whiteboards and they are expected to practice. I can put their strategies on there. I can put their goals on there. Anything I need them to remember and to reinforce, it all goes on those whiteboards. The beauty with Zoom, you can have unlimited amount of whiteboards. I can have eight whiteboards. That's a little much because then I have to rename all of them and that gets to be a pain. But the point is the client has access to all that. Then they can practice. They can come back with questions on the next session and we can keep moving forward. That's one of my favorite parts of telepractice. I give my clients more information and more homework ability because I'm on the whiteboard than I ever did when I was sitting across from them at a table and handwriting stuff out. Mm-hmm. They and also they can get that multimodal, you know, they're getting that visual input. I may not be targeting reading. They're still seeing it. They're mm-hmm. still comprehending some of it. Doesn't matter. We're going to get into treatment a little more and we'll talk some more about the whiteboard, but it is absolutely my favorite tool for working with adults. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So you create your goal on your thermometer, on your whiteboard, and you really focus on whole person goals that are centered on the life of that individual. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So let's say I've determined they've got some phonological things going on during the evaluation. My goal is not going to be working on that sound letter correspondence necessarily, but that's going to be incorporated into whatever the the end goal is going to be. And that end goal is what's important to them. I can work on all the impairment level stuff I need to and still get to a functional goal. I love functional goals. I think it just makes so much more sense. It makes more sense for me as a clinician. Again, because I guess I've just been a functional clinician for so long, I don't know how to do it any other way. But I'll still incorporate in plenty of, you know, protocols like semantic feature analysis or, you know, verb networking. I'll use all of those tools but my goal won't necessarily be directed at that protocol that I'm using. It's going to be directed at what that functional outcome is, what that patient wants. Ordering in the restaurant, being able to dial the phone and turn on a FaceTime call with a granddaughter and be able to talk for five minutes, you know, maybe with a script, whatever the case may be, whatever's important to them, that's what we're going to target. Language is everywhere. It's in everything. It's up to us to be creative. How we get there. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. That makes sense. <laughs> is okay. that mic drop or is that just a pause? But Okay, so you mentioned, <laughs> no, I, language is everywhere. And think of the sense of accomplishment when that person gets to have that conversation with their grandchild there's, versus there's nothing better answering correctly in a workbook. I mean, there's, or, there's just or, no comparison. Exactly. I was trained so differently. I was trained so differently, you know, where we did use books and there wasn't a reason why we just asked 20 yes, no questions. And we tallied it out and saw that they were 75% accurate. What does that tell us? 
It doesn't. That they were 75% accurate. Right, <laughs> on that task, but it doesn't tell us how do they, how do they process. Or, you know, a good functional goal is where the spouse brings a cup of tea to the husband who is my client and he turns to her and he says, thank you for my tea. Can you imagine from somebody that can't talk, that somebody who has aphasia and apraxia, and he just turned and acknowledged his wife and said a functional, practical sentence. I, I, I got nothing else. I mean, there, there's nothing like it. So that's important. You have to understand. We have to understand as clinicians how these people live, what challenges mm-hmm. they are up against. We have to look more holistically than just at naming. Can't do it. Well, and looking holistically in writing goals, you mentioned five different parameters that you look at. Can you talk about those a little bit? Sure. So I like to look at the skill we're targeting. This is what you're referring to, right? Yes. The, yep. uh, the strategies that we're using, whether it's script training or being able to read you know, words that are on a page to help prompt them to move forward. The context that they're practicing in, whether they're practicing at home or they are outside with their caregiver and they're able to turn to their caregiver and ask a question versus when they're in a restaurant, being able to ask a question like, can I have a spoon? You know, when their soup arrives and they don't have a spoon for them to be able to turn to the waiter and say, can I have a spoon or spoon, please? Or so that's just working in different contexts. The number of communication partners one on one is a whole lot easier than if it's two people, Mm -hmm. if it's three people, if it's in a restaurant, how distracting or noisy the environment is. We know from talking to hundreds of clients over my career Noise bothers them more than I think we realize as clinicians. Mm -hmm. Their Mm -hmm. thoughts, I think of their thought is so fragile. It's like, it's like that silken web that the spider is weaving in, you know, the upper part of your kitchen. It is so fragile and they work so hard to get their concept that any interruption, somebody, if they're in a restaurant, somebody dropping a silverware on the floor can break that thread and they've lost their thought, then maybe they can get back to it. Maybe they cannot. So noise, interruptions, family members. It is so important. Family members don't interrupt. We need to teach our clients how to advocate for themselves. If they don't want help, we need to teach our clients to ask for help when they want it. We should not just be jumping in just because we're getting uncomfortable with a five second delay or a five second pause. We mm-hmm. have to get comfortable with that as a listener. And these are patterns that have developed over the course of years post stroke, and some which were very functional initially, just to be able to express, communicate. Excellent point. And communicate once it needs. But after two years, they can kind of become habits. And even when a person can speak for themselves, that communication partner sometimes speaks for them. So it's, it's kind of breaking habits on both ends. Definitely. And, and that's part of why I'm not just running the private practice. That's why I'm working, you know, I'm going to be working hands-on with 
the spouses and the families that want to learn, not only for coaching, you know, to carry over homework and practice, but how to just communicate, how to learn how to sit and be still and let your person try and get it out. And if he gives you a gesture that says you can help, great, that's when you help. But I want to teach my spouses what's the right way to help. What's a better way to help? There's no right and wrong, you know, right? Everything's on a continuum, but it's about empowering our folks with aphasia to get what they need and to not sabotage them just because we're uncomfortable with the silence and we want to jump in and give them a cue. Oh, do you mean it's this? Do you mean it's that? Oh, you mean it's this, blah, blah, blah. They've lost it. They've lost the thought. They've lost the concept. And often it just, it knocks out their confidence enough they may not even bother to try and get back to it. And that's a lost opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying all, I have all the answers, but I sure am trying to help make it better. And just being very conscientious as a clinician and teaching others how to do the same. So teaching others as part of that client's therapy but then in addition to that, so you'll you'll have the spouse or family member in a session sometimes teaching them then, but separately you teach them individually with without the client. Yes, that's, that's through Life Aphasia Academy. Can you I know it's, it's I know we're not linear, but it's, that's a that's a little digression. But can I'm you explain the difference? <laughs> I won't ever be. So I envision it differently when I'm working with my patient. You know, we spend all of our time in private practice. We're working with the client. We do some education and training, but we don't do it without the client. What I'm envisioning Life Aphasia Academy can do is really spending time in a group. I'm envisioning courses. I've actually had a couple of spouses go through my my initial, my founding course. I mean, it's not finalized by any means. But the idea is to teach about the brain. How does language work? Where does it break down? If it breaks down here, here's what you can see. Because I really want them to get the insight on where their person is. It's one thing to hear it from a speech therapist, but if they don't understand it, they're not going to change their methods of communication. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I'm envisioning courses, probably live courses or ongoing support, whatever the, you know, to be determined. You know, I got lots of things going on, you know, lots of things in development, but I really want to support spouses and I can support spouses and not know their person. It doesn't mean I have to have their person in therapy at all. This is that's a really good point. This is, this is going to be general. I'm not diagnosing and treating who their person is. I'm educating and empowering the spouses, the partners, the family members to understand where their person is and how they can, you know, live life the best they can with where the person is. And hopefully they keep getting better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I don't. Well, that's really end. important because we have all known clients who have decided on their own that they're done with therapy. And the family members feel like there's more potential. So this is a way to help the client or or help the family when that person has decided that they're finished. I think it just gives another avenue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the spouses, I pick spouses because that's the person I see in my mind. But 
even though I use and choose to say that word, it includes anybody that's interacting. With my newer client that I just took on, he's in his 50s. I very well may do training with him and his boss. He asked me that straight up, you know, on our consultation call. My boss is very supportive. Would you be able to tell him about me and how I work and what we're working on? Oh, that's so exciting. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Mm -hmm. So there is infinite possibility. So I want to support. I know spouses, you know, early on, they are in triage mode. They are, you know, just trying to exist. What if they have their person coming home who has to be turned every two hours now? Plus, the wife is cooking and cleaning and doing everything else she did before running the household. Maybe there's kids. Maybe there's not. You know, it just depends on the age. But now she has to get up at night and turn. And how is she going to take care of herself so she can keep moving forward? How is she going to learn what the therapists are teaching her and the nurse, how the nurse wants her to carry over what they're teaching? If this person is not getting sleep and not recharging, how is she going to learn all that stuff and apply it? I remember my days back in home health, we'd all be going in and like, well, Mrs. Jones, you need to do this and you need to do that. And then we talk at team meeting Well, she's not doing it. Well, she's not. Well, she can't. So this is where Life of Asia Academy is trying in lots of different ways. I want to meet these caregivers where they are and give them the tools and information to help get some of those burning things off their plate so that they can listen to the rehab professionals, so that they can help carry over the home program. So there's lots of layers of complexity there. Like I said, lots of work to do. Well, it's exciting. And it's it's a really valuable resource that you are providing families and communication partners of people with aphasia. So thank you for taking that idea and running with it. And it's exciting to see where it'll go. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. I need help. You know, people want to get involved with this. I am more than happy to share the load. There's lots of ideas out there. Lots of ideas, lots of different ways. Well, I know. So one of the things you mentioned was, you know, helping family members, communication partners with functional therapy and homework. But before we get into that, I wanted to touch base on some people might say, well, you're working on functional therapy, but are you helping with the impairments? And I know you mentioned earlier that you do help with the impairments uh, through therapy. So can you talk a little specifically about what you do to help with the impairments? So it just depends on, obviously, there can be, it's very complex depending on who the person is and where they are. No matter, if there are functional impairments, let's say it's phonological and they are not understanding the sound letter correspondence, we're going to work that into our therapy, but we're still going to keep functional goals. And I'm going to do a lot of education because stuff like that needs a lot of practice. So I'm going to try and get the caregiver and the spouse involved with that early on so that they can really be practicing that at home because they don't need me doing that the whole session. Does that make sense? So so mm-hmm. we're sharing the load. We're, we're trying to be smart about it. So we'll, we'll dig into whatever we need to if somebody is noun bound. You know, some they've worked with therapists in the past and it's all about confrontation naming, but they don't have a verb 
or two verbs to rub together to make a sentence, we got to work on the verbs, right? We're going to work at a sentence. We're going to work on pronouns and verbs and basic conjugation. And we're going to take that to a didactic conversation. So if their sentence is, I teach, and I can get them to say, I teach, and then I'm going to ask them a question. Do you teach? And then they think and breathe and they say, I teach. And we can get working. So that's what I'm talking about, the dyad, where they get their sentence, I ask a question, they use the sentence functionally. And then we can expand that and build on it. But if they don't have verbs, we got to get verbs. Pronouns are important. It's probably one of the biggest complaints I hear from families when the survivor refers to the wife as he. It just drives people crazy. And so I'm not working on it for that reason, but I'm trying to build sentences. You can have a full sentence in two words. So that's what we work on. So we get these quick wins early on. We work at the impairment level, but we always take it to function. Conversation okay. Thank as much you. as we can. All right. So speaking of functional therapy homework, and as you said, you're only, and what is the frequency that you see most of your clients? Uh, most Twice folks are two times a week. Two okay. Times a week. And they're half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, just depends. About 45 minutes. Yeah. Okay. I have some people that like to work an hour. I have some people that like to work more often that like they'll do three times a week for 30 minutes. You know, okay. we find a we find a balance. Some some are really busy. They have big social lives, and so I work really hard to keep a consistent schedule for them. You know, if, if that's just again how I work, and I also like a predictability in my own schedule. But we're starting to play with some more intensive treatments, doing a longer session, maybe one time a week with a heavier homework load, especially if there's a spouse or caregiver that can be trained in these areas to work and they can really carry it over and have intensive practice throughout the week. Okay. So tell us about your home program and your the homework that you give. And um, will you also mention how I know it depends upon each individual client, but in general, how long do you expect someone to practice or are they actually practicing throughout the day? Great questions. So it depends. <laughs> That's my nice vague <laughs> answer for you. I do want people practicing throughout the day. So if it's something that's repetitive, where I hate to call it drilling, but it's where you're just trying to get in a lot of repetitions and practice, that's, I think, best done in chunks of time. Most folks wear out quickly, but it's but also knowing that building their endurance is an important component as well. So if I know that in treatment, you know, they're worn out in 20 minutes, we'll be real strategic about, you know, each week we're increasing that time of homework practice. But I love people to practice when they're tired. I like them to practice when they're fresh because, right, again, it's not linear. That's a good point. I mean, so often we say, you know, practice when you're awake and alert and feeling fresh, but maybe the practice when we're tired might be more important. We may have to implement more strategies, but isn't that a great 
practical application. You know, they're tired and they might need a little more support. The spouse can be trained how to support them more at those. Because we can't make all the families. So let me go back. What if there's a family event, a meal, a holiday, whatever, and because of young grandkids, family's not coming over till six o'clock at night, but we know that this guy gets really tired right around that time. Well, then let's train the spouse how to support him at those times. Let's teach him how to advocate for what he needs. If he needs people to just talk a little slower, maybe it's a card he holds out. Maybe it's a gesture he uses and the family's been trained on what that means. I want my folks involved all the time. I want them interacting. I don't want them pushed out just because they're tired because we all have to persevere, don't we? Yes, we do. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, so homework, I want people practice. You asked how much time I want three hours a day. Am I going to get three hours a day? Probably not. But if we can chunk it and keep it fresh and have a couple of different tasks that they can alternate so that they're not getting worn out. Awesome. But, you know, if it's just the spouse in the house, I'm like Dr. Seuss, the spouse in the house, there might be a little mouse too. She's only going to have so much bandwidth. So I Mm. need to have tasks that that person can work on on their own. That's where those whiteboards come in handy. Maybe they take the words and they practice writing the words. Maybe they print out that PDF with our words and sentences and they just type it into a Word document. Wife can help set him up, make sure he's good to go or he's in a Google Doc. Better yet, a Google Doc in our shared folder so I can see it. He can be copying those words. Just because we might work on something verbally doesn't mean he can't work on keyboarding. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I need stimulation. I Neuroplasticity, the research shows lots of repetition and intensity. But we have to be realistic as clinicians because the person, the other person in the house may not be available to help do all of those things that we want. Mm-hmm. So as far as homework goes, going back to your initial consultation and your assessment, do you have any kind of agreement with someone before they're before you decide to work with them that they're committed to practicing on their own. Absolutely. You ask well, for that you know, agreement, I don't know if I love that word, but uh, again, I set the expectation because if somebody's going to work with me, I am not dragging them along. I learned this a long time ago early in my career as enthusiastic as I am, a cheerleader, I'm always the cheerleader for my folks. I can't do it for them. So I, again, I try and build that into my expectations early on. Like, this is what it looks like to do therapy with me. We might meet twice a week, 45 minutes. I expect you to get in the folder. I expect you to review the words we work on. We're going to get you keyboarding. We're going to get you logging into all your Zoom sessions. If for some reason you don't get the Zoom link, I expect you to call me on the phone. You know, and whatever we need to do for supports, whether the wife types out or writes out my phone number in large numbers, we've practiced them using the phone. They know how to do it. They know where to find it. I mean, we put all these things in place. So, again, it's all about expectation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So, so those expectations are clearly established. So they're not Absolutely. surprised that they have homework. They are not surprised. And I call it homework. I mean, I don't have a better word for it. And I always tell them I'm torturing them. So that's just me. That's just how I work. <laughs> All right. So what else about homework? What else about homework? They need to buy in. They need to check back in. They need to follow up with questions. Again, it's not me therapizing them. They're not doing it to get a grade. They're doing it to get better. I don't give busy work. Sometimes we might even use some apps. But if we use apps, I'm very specific with how we do it. We all make a spreadsheet that says what app they're doing, where their current score is, what are their strategies to get to the next level and how we're going to progress through the apps. I don't just have them buy an app and let them just go willy nilly. It's just, what's the good of that? I need to see they're progressing. They need to see they're progressing, especially mm-hmm. if they have to work hard at it. Yeah. So there well, is there a link bought- for apps for sure. Yeah. So would you say you use apps with most clients in addition to everything else or? No. Part of it is some folks don't have some of these apps need an iPad or a tablet. Mm-hmm. And they don't have it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we find other ways to do it. We get creative. So we've talked about client buy-in and it is really important and, ex- and to have those expectations set. So you have mentioned some early functional wins that help with buy-in. Can you talk about those? Absolutely. So this is a probably unique to the clientele I work with. The chronic aphasia, sometimes they've developed some really bad habits. We talked to, you know, we kind of alluded to this early on in the, in our talk. I got to get rid of those bad habits. If somebody is sitting there and they're slumping in their chair and they're not making eye contact, you better believe I am eye contact first. I want them looking at me. I want them thinking. They have to get uncomfortable before they get comfortable. It is just one of those things because I think most clinicians, I won't even say clinicians, most people respond well to eye contact, a little smile a little encouragement. We have to have icon. So that's a quick win for me. And it's one of the very first things. And I tease them. I give them a hard time. Like, what are you looking at over there, Bob? You know, what's more interesting than my lovely face? You know, <laughs> you look over here. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think. I want you to take a breath. And then I want you to say your answer. Are you ready? We'll start with a lot of like mindful yes, no's, just simple. It could be orientation questions. It could be personal. It doesn't matter the stimuli. The point is they're looking at me. They're anticipating the question. They're still looking at me. They're thinking, even if it takes them four, five, six seconds, that's fine. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to look at them. I might stick my tongue out at them, you know, if I see that their aphasia stress is is starting to build up and they're getting worked up and and I tease them and I say, I see smoke coming out, you know, smoke's coming out your ears. Those gears are really turned. And then we'll take it a step back. We'll reset. We'll get them back on track. Eye contact, breathing, thinking, answering. I don't want an automatic answer. I want a thoughtful answer. So eye contact, mindful thinking and responses. I want my folks thinking they have to. 
aphasia stress I talked about, you start seeing them get stressed. You watch their body language. You start them crumbling in on themselves. You see that their eyes start to dart. So as far as the aphasia stress goes, and if we've worked with clients with aphasia, we have all seen that. Have most of these clients who are coming to you one year, two year after their incident, have they actively worked on that stress or it's more of a, some of those outward signs of stress become coping mechanisms and, and, and they don't actually acknowledge it? I think you just hit it right on the head. It's, I think it's a behavior, it's defense mechanism. You know, if they turn in on themselves, they might not have to answer the question. Not in a therapeutic situation, but just in general with a family. And then what does that do for the family? Family stops asking the questions. Mm -hmm. Right? If your dad, if you're there to visit with your dad and he's closing in on himself and he's not looking at you and he's not trying, do you keep pushing? Some would, but most won't. And right. then that's a lost opportunity. That's a lost relationship. Mm -hmm. So really naming and acknowledging that stress is an early win leading to a better functional outcome. Absolutely. It's just getting rid of it, getting rid of some bad habits. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, you know, we gloss over these like, oh, these are early functional wins, but it's not like it's going to happen right away. It's going to take some time. It's going to take time. Mm -hmm. Just like any time somebody has to cope with something that's uncomfortable. And sometimes it does take, you know, some weeks to work through that. But that's not just what we're working on. Again, it's incorporated into everything we're doing. I'll give them breaks and I'll call it what it is. Let's have a water break. Let's just relax for a second. And then we get right back to it. I help them learn how to reset. One of the really exciting things about your therapy is that you have clients that you work with for years. Yeah. And I know you, and you're not going to be working with someone just to work with someone. You're only working with someone if they're making progress. And to think back to what you and I are around the same age, you know, what we learned in school about plateaus, it's really exciting to think that years down the road, people can be making significant functional progress. Absolutely. Because what their interests might have been a year ago and where their interests are now can totally change, right? Because their language, their speech has come along and now they're out in the community more. Maybe now they're involved in an aphasia book club and that's what they want to work on. You know, I have a wellness program where it's completely client focused. We work on, I mean, there's the functional goals, there's the you know, working with insurance or in Medicare parameters, things that are medically necessary. There's that part of it. And then there's this other fun part. If somebody wants to be in book club or do movie reviews, let's have at it. Let's figure out a way. I'm still using the concepts that I know of language, but this is not a medically, you know, somebody being able to give a verbal movie review is not medically necessary. But it's fun for them. And if that's what they want to work on and they're getting value out of it and they're interacting more in the world and with people, who am I to deny them that? So there's, there's options. You know, we have to think outside the box. And that's really what this chronic aphasia population has taught me. 
Mm-hmm. There is not a plateau. Maybe the therapist is plateaued. But I think as a clinician, and I remember back, I remember when there were times when I'm like, I got nothing else. My toolbox is empty. But then it's my job to get them to that next level or to that next person or to give them resources or other places they can go. You know, I don't, I will never tell somebody they've reached a plateau. I might have reached a plateau, but I'm at, I where I am in my career where I can acknowledge that. Been around the block a couple times. <laughs> but it is a part of this comes with time, right? And experience and practice. I've done a lot of reflecting back on my early days as a clinician. It's been pretty eye opening to see how I have evolved as a clinician. And I'm involved, I became involved recently with the University of Texas health system down in San Antonio. I had my first grad student as an intern in the spring. And I love what they're doing in that program. They are, they are teaching these young clinicians not only their skills, you know, the hard skills, but these clinicians are coming in with some soft skills too, meaning they're about building rapport. So I had the opportunity to be in San Antonio. I'm in Austin, but I was in San Antonio for two weeks working with six different grad students and they were great, fun, but I see where they are. And so I'm really trying to help them. The hard skills come, right? You get better at giving tests. You get better at scoring tests. You get better at interpreting the results and writing your goals. All that comes. But if you can't build rapport with your person that's trusting you, you're not going to make near the gains as you would as if you had that rapport. So mm-hmm. it's super important. And all these students, they had it. They had those soft skills. It's just incorporating both together to be a, a good clinician. So it's fun. Yeah, it's fun to be a mentor and to give back and to see what they're learning. That's just, it's fun. I love it. I never, ever thought I would love it, but I do. <laughs> Well, they are lucky to have you, as are your clients and their families and the field of speech-language pathology. This Life Aphasia Academy is really exciting, and it doesn't seem like there's anything quite like this out there for we'll parents, for families with aphasia. That's, yeah. that's what I'm hoping. I, I just want to support. I'm lucky to be where I am clinically, you know, to have this. I have the support of my family. My husband is 110% behind me. My kids are behind, you know, what I'm doing. They, they hate the long hours I'm working, but they understand where we're going and they all support me. I couldn't be happier. I'm blessed. I'm, I'm really blessed to be where I am. And I hope that I can powerfully impact, help these stroke survivors. And, and it's not just stroke, it's neurologic conditions. I boil it down to stroke because then, you know, you start naming out all the diagnoses and then you've got, Mm -hmm. but my point is it's all neurologic. Aphasia is just a language disorder. It can come from any reason. Lots of different ways you get aphasia. So my methods are universal. We have to make some tweaks for some conditions, but the foundation is there. Well, Genevieve Richardson, thank you so much for being with us today (laughs) and sharing your expertise with us. We really do appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. 
Thank you, Mary Beth. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.